0: We really live in an age of contradictions, don't we? and pretty substantial ones, uh, and, but, and they're all over the place. They're, they're, they're real significant, and sometimes they're funny and contradictory and humorous, like uh, you know, like the term uh, expression, slim chance, means the same as fat chance. I don't know how that works out. Or uh, we call them apartments, but if you've ever lived in an apartment, you know they're nothing apart. They're all smashed together like that, right? Or, or we drive on parkways. We park on driveways. This medicine I, morning, I took medicine to help me with my nose, to clear up my nose, but then it's dried up my mouth. Contradictions of our lives are everywhere. Uh, from the insignificant like those to the significant like we just saw in that video. Also, for example, we are living in what's called the information communication age, but according to the Pew Research Center, a third of Americans don't even know who their neighbors are, and 48% of them that do don't trust them. We have never known more about social psychology, gender, as we've just been talking about, birth order dynamics and personality profiles, but according to the American Psychological Association, the divorce rates for American couples now are between 40 and 50%. 40 to 50% of American couples will end in divorce, and the subsequent, uh, subsequent marriages from those divorces, it's even higher. Here's another contradiction. We live in one of the most literal, or the literacy rate in this country is amongst the highest in the developed world. But according to Pew, in 2014, Nearly 25% of Americans did not read a single book in 2014, didn't crack open a paperback, didn't fire up a Kindle, didn't even push play on an audiobook, read nothing, although we have a literacy rate of almost 100%. We have these smartphones. We all have one of them. And with this device, people can get directions to any place on the planet, but people have never been more lost than ever before. With this amazing device of communication, every form of communication is available. I can talk to conceivably anybody in the world, but not the people in the room I happen to be with. We've seen that all over the place. Contradictions are everywhere in our world, and I suspect that part of the reason we have these contradictions is a misunderstanding between the difference of what's knowledge and what is wisdom. We have more and more knowledge, but seemingly less and less wisdom. We love knowledge and information, don't we? Facts, stats, tidbits of trivia, all things temporal, but few things eternal, it seems. It shouldn't be surprising when you think about the culture we all live in. We are in a culture that is enamored with the new, the improved, the updated. We're drawn to what changes and gets better. Knowledge seems to continually grow, but wisdom seems static. After all, the wisdom that helped my grandfather get through life, it's probably the same wisdom that's going to help me get through life. And in a culture that always thinks new is better, things that stay the same old, same old is tantamount to boring. And in a culture like that, boring is the curse of death. And so, while knowledge seems exciting because it's always growing, wisdom seems boring. But here's the thing. Wisdom lays the foundation for the right use of knowledge. But when wisdom is neglected and only knowledge is exalted, it is inevitable that we will live in a culture of contradictions that we see around us everywhere, every day. This is why the Bible has included in its canon a whole genre called the wisdom literature, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Job, the Song of Solomon, or Song of Songs. Those books were written with the express hope of rooting all of our knowledge in wisdom. And of all the New Testament books, only one is affectionately called the wisdom literature of the New Testament, and that's the book of James. The book of James has also been called the Proverbs of the New Testament because of its concise and straightforward axioms of truth. The book of James has also been called the Amos of the New Testament, because like its Old Testament counterpart, James was concerned and interested in how do we live well in life. Amos, like James, was about a life well lived, which is, by the way, a great definition of wisdom, the ability to live life well. I wonder this morning if you have what it takes to live life well. I wonder if you realize your need for wisdom this morning. The wisest of us know just how unwise we really are. And like so much of Christianity, it only benefits you if you know your need. Forgiveness doesn't mean much if you don't feel you have anything to be forgiven of. The promise of wisdom falls flat if you think you already know. It's dangerous to live in a culture where knowledge doubles every two years, and wisdom is no no longer seen as a prized virtue. Knowledge says pay $125 an hour to go see a marriage therapist every week. Wisdom says take an older couple out for lunch and sit at their feet and learn what it is to love through a lifetime. Knowledge may consist of information, but wisdom is knowing what to do with that information. The two are not the same, are they? The book of James is about knowing what to do with the knowledge of God. In short, it's about godly wisdom. Knowledge about the gospel is one thing, but if wisdom is the ability to live life well, then James is about living out the gospel. This morning, uh, what we want to do is just get oriented to what is a very short book, just five verses, but it has so much to teach us. We want to learn about the man, James, and the message he's going to bring to us before we dive into an in-depth study of it in about two weeks. Next week, we're going to do what's called a reading service. We thought it would be helpful to do an introduction to the message to orient you to the themes so that you have something to listen to at our reading service next week. If you've never been here for one of those, you're in for a treat. So, I only have two main points to the message today the man and his message, and the verse is only one verse, James 1, verse 1. Let me read it to you this morning. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion, greetings. That was a very short reading, one verse this morning. So, let's look at the man, verse 1. First half of verse 1, probably the most astounding thing to know about James is, number one, James, the writer of this book, is the half-brother, the biological half-brother of Jesus Christ himself. More amazing than that, however, is that James did not believe that his half-brother was the Messiah of Israel. His entire life, growing up next to Jesus, never believed that Jesus was, in fact, the Messiah of Israel. I suppose after the fact, he realized why his parents always said, can't you be more like Jesus? But up to that point, he didn't know who he was. John chapter 7 verse 5 tells us this, for even his own brothers did not believe in him. We can assume from Matthew chapter 13 and Mark chapter 6 that this was true of all of Jesus' brothers and sisters, James, Joseph, or Hoses, Simon, and Judas. In fact, in Mark 321 they thought their brother was out of his mind an embarrassment to the family mark chapter 6 verse 3 they would say is not the people would say is not this the carpenter the son of mary and brother of james and joses and judas and simon and are not his sisters here with us and they took offense at him friends i hope i hope you can be encouraged if you have been trying to share the gospel with your family I feel like you're just not getting anywhere and not making any headway. I hope you were encouraged that even though Jesus' brothers and sisters lived with Him, they themselves did not perceive the truth of which He spoke. I hope you can realize that the conversions, maybe for you, was a radical transformation in a few encounters, and you're not seeing that with your family. Don't get discouraged, because there was Jesus day in, day out, month in, month out, year in, year out, perfect, And yet his brothers and sisters never understood who he was, but it did change. Just eight months after John chapter 7, we read that James, the rest of his brothers and sisters as well, believed and were in prayer with the other disciples. Acts chapter 1, we go to the book of Acts to see that, verse 13, and when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying. Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus and Simon the zealot, and Judas the son of James. These were the remaining eleven disciples after Judas of Iscariot committed suicide. All these, with one accord, were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. So, what happened? Now, just seven months after John chapter 7, we see that His brothers, and we assume His sisters are, well, are believers and praying with the disciples, trusting Him as the Messiah. So, what took place? Well, for that, 1 Corinthians 15 tells us, verse 6 and 7, then He, speaking of Jesus, appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time. He's referring to Christian brothers, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then He appeared to James, and then to all the apostles. I love the fact that we see that Jesus appeared to His brother James, a tender moment never recorded in Scripture. Outside of that, we have no idea the conversation that took place. I imagine James is probably apologizing for all the pranks he pulled on now the Messiah, right? But we don't know what happened. We just know that Jesus cared to meet with His half-brother. And as a result, the whole family now trusts and believes. So again, don't get discouraged that your family's not converting. It takes a miracle. It took a miracle. It took Jesus coming back from the grave for His brother and family to recognize who He was. So James, along with his brothers and sisters, first disbelieving and now disciples after His crucifixion and resurrection, being with the disciples, praying with them, and James in particular becomes a very prominent leader amongst the church years later. A shepherd who he once thought his brother was out of his mind is now representing and caring for his disciples. But notice what he calls himself in his introduction. Keep in mind, this is James, Jesus' brother, and he calls himself as he writes a letter to the Jerusalem church and through… excuse me, throughout… to the brothers and sisters all throughout James as the kind of leader, the patriarch of the Jerusalem church, encouraging the Christians out there, he calls himself not brother, but a bond servant. James makes no special appeal to his physical relationship with Jesus. I find that interesting. In a culture like ours, enamored with name dropping and credential flashing, if anyone could have name dropped and flashed his credentials, it would have been James. Can you imagine that congregational meeting at the Jerusalem church? (laughs) Guys, hold on, let's just, look, I know we have extra money. The Corinthians have blessed us. We have lots of money. You know what? By the way, I'm James, brother of the Messiah, you know, right? I was talking to the mother of God, who's also my mom, and this is what we think. We need to, we need to build a retreat center in Pamphylia. I mean, you can imagine the weight he could throw around. He does not do that at all. It is not his physical relationship to Jesus Christ that gives him his authority, or it gives him the credibility to pastor and shepherd and to encourage the body. It is his spiritual relationship. He is a bond servant. It is not a relationship unique to James. It's a relationship open to anybody in Christ to be a bondservant. The original word here that James is using is the Greek word doulos, which means slave, someone who deprived of all personal freedom and totally under the control of his master. They were to be absolutely obedient and loyal to their master, and in turn, the master would absolutely care for their due loss. Food, clothing, housing, everything. In Jewish culture, uh, again, it's hard for us to not impose our understanding of slavery on that culture. There were some atrocities and abuses that we're familiar with that were true as well, but there's also different dynamics that we're not used to. And in, in Jewish culture, every 50 years, it's called the Year of Jubilee, all debts were forgiven, all slaves were set free. But certain slaves who loved their masters. Could continue to be in involuntary in service to the master, and to signify that they would nail the, uh, right through their low, or the top part of their ear against the doorpost and put a ring through that to signify their indentured servitude to a master whom they loved and the master whom loved them. It was a sign of deep service and affection. Something that we have no category for when we think of slavery, but that was there in that time. Though they could be free, they didn't want to be free. They loved this master, and the master loved them. And it was a sign for all to see. Yesterday, I was at the uh, uh, Orange County Fair Market, and I saw an indentured slave of Christ. Except it wasn't an earring. It's the word Do loss" tattooed to his uh, right back arm tricep. It made me think of one of my earliest friends, a young man I got to disciple who wanted the world to know that though he could be free to do what he wanted, he voluntarily was a slave and had, had doulos tattooed onto his thigh as in typical Hawaiian culture so that everybody would ask what that meant and he could tell them that he was a willing slave of the master. I was so impressed that I didn't have the heart to tell me he spelt it wrong, but no, no one's going to know, right? No one's going to know. But by James taking on this title of bondservant, of loss, James was numbering himself with men like Paul, Moses, King David, Job, Daniel, and many more who considered themselves God's servants. These men were honored not for who they were, but because of whom they served. I wonder In our culture where everyone's trying to be first, do you consider it an honor to serve? Of course you're going to say, yes, that's what we Christians have to do, but just don't treat me like a servant. Do you consider it an honor to serve, to give away your rights, to be the one that's submissive? Remember you drink in the Kool-Aid of our culture that views servitude and submission as the new S word? It's above us. We like to talk about servanthood. Just don't treat me like a servant. Take a look at your bulletin this morning. It's a good chance you didn't have to go look for that. It's a good chance somebody served you and put that in your hand. If you've got kids in the nursery, you're being served right now. After our service, you'll get a donut and get some coffee. Someone served you well. Do you consider it an honor to serve? And does it show through the fabric of your life in the, in the whoop and woof of the way you live in the big things and the small things? You drive into the church parking lot and spot that available spot right in the front and zoom, you're going to take it. Praise God, I'm there early. Or do you say, hey, I want to save this for an older saint that has a hard time walking up steps or it's hard for them to get there, or for a young family trying to corral a bunch of kids. I don't want them walking through a dangerous parking lot. I will park far away. I'll leave the top ones for them. Do you think about serving, and is it wed to the servants? So, that's James, a man who disbelieved, but because of an amazing work of God, he came to faith, and his faith wasn't fueled by nepotism and name-calling and credential flashing, but of service to God's people. And here's his message to the twelve tribes and the dispersion. Greetings. Now, it's easy to skip over these introductory comments of biblical books. Many of them are very familiar, and they seem the same, but oftentimes you can find very important information that sets the trajectory of the book just on that. For example, we know the specific group of people that James is writing to, the 12 tribes, in a specific situation, the dispersion, or also known as the diaspora. So, let's talk about that specific group. They were the 12 tribes. Now, who, who are the 12 tribes? These were the descendants of Jacob we find in Genesis 49. These are the original 12 tribes of Israel from Genesis 49. So we understand who James is writing to are primarily Jewish believers who had converted to Christ. These were Jewish Christians who are now trying to make sense of this new faith merged with what they understood from Judaism. And why are they living abroad? Well, there are two reasons they're living abroad. In the dispersion, right, you know the word disperse means to scatter, disperse. The two reasons are primarily, uh, first of all, when Assyria and Babylon destroyed the people of God and sent them into captivity in 722 and 586 B.C. respectively, they were scattered. Now, many of them did come back, right? You know that story, Haggai and and Nehemiah, through their leadership, reestablished Israel. So many of them came back, but many of them were still out there. But specifically, the reason they scattered, the book of Acts tells us why these Christians scattered to the four winds. Acts chapter 8 tells us this, verse 1 through 4. And Saul, you should remember that name, approved of his execution, Stephen the martyr. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea, Samaria, except for the apostles. Now, those who were scattered went about preaching the word. I love this. We're going to see it again later. But I love the fact that these early Christians did not demand their rights. This was wrong to persecute us. We're taking you to court. Our rights, our rights, our rights. They did not do that at all. As a matter of fact, they actually viewed the persecution of, God, uh, persecution of the church as a bigger part of God's plan. Because as they scattered, what did they do? They went about proclaiming the gospel. Friends, this is, this is how James works. Trials often works for the benefit of a larger plan. We don't see that because that's why they're trials to us. But God often uses difficulties to accomplish His greater purposes. And we see that right here. Secondly, Acts chapter 11, verse 19, we see this. Now, those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen, referencing Acts 8, traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, again, speaking the word to no one except Jews. That's an interesting cultural note there, but the point is they were scattered, taking the gospel everywhere. So, that's the specific group, the 12 tribes, these Jewish people who converted to Christianity who were scattered because of a great persecution living in the diaspora, the dispersion, now the specific situation. Because they were dispersed, lived away from their homeland, forced away from all that they knew, more than likely they were probably a struggling group of individuals, sometimes in oppressing situations. i leave that to you to make kind of commentary on our own current culture and situations that we find in the news. In a sense, they were trying to live out their new faith and reconcile it with their new situation. How do you deal with this situation with, where it just seems like trial after trial? How do we re- relate with other believers, some who may be poorer than us, some who may be richer than us, some that are Christians, and some that are not? How do we relate with God? How does this all work? That's why James is such a loved book. He's loved for three reasons, but, and here's why. Number one, James is an intensely practical book. He hits us right where we live. How do we make sense of trials and hard times in our lives? How should we relate to those who are richer or poorer than ourselves? How do we conduct this gift of language? How do we speak? How do we make promises? How do we pray? How do we get along with one another? You see, chapter 1 really is the introduction, and the three themes that come out strongly are wisdom and trials and living out your faith. These all go together. So, James is a very relevant book in a culture that's so accustomed to culture, excuse me, comfort, right? James really talks about trials are often the springboard God uses to bring about the development of wisdom so that we can live out our faith. Radically countercultural. And then the rest of the chapters 2 through 5 unpacks this. So, James is not just talking about how to live in the world around us, but more importantly, how to live when the world gets inside of us. And so for that, I want you to be in the book of James because I want you to see this. There, there, there are five things that come out that James is going to continue to hammer. Chapter 2, verses 1 through 4 is the first one, how when worldliness gets inside of a church, what number one thing you're going to see is the distinctions we make, a, a deference to the rich, and, 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 and ignoring sometimes of the poor. James writes this, "'My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there, or sit down at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts?' Yeah, I kind of, I jumped ahead because I just thought of something before I came up here, but James's point was that trials are the very platform that God uses to expose these realities. For that, look at chapter 1, verse 2, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet various trials of various kinds. I can, you can fill in the blank. Many of you are going through trials of various kinds. You know what they are. This is what God's Word says to us, for you know that the testing of your faith, your trials are testing your faith, it produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect. Why? That you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. But when that's not happening and worldliness gets in, we begin to make these distinctions that the world does. We treat people differently depending on their socioeconomic class. This is wrong, James says. What else happens in a church when there's a worldliness within it? It's uncontrolled, critical speech. Look at chapter 3, verses 9 through 12. With it, he's speaking of the tongue, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening, both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives, or a grapevine produce figs. Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. Chapter 4, verse 11 and 12, take a look at that. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. So, worldliness that gets in a church shows that we make distinctions based on things that are superficial, critical, harsh speech begins to abound, judgment, gossip, slander, unhelpful words. There's a wisdom, James 3.15 says, that seems like wisdom, but it's earthly, it's unspiritual, it's of the devil. Look at chapter 3, verse 15. This is not the wisdom that comes from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic, and it often leads to violent quarreling. Look at chapter 4, verse 1 through 3 what causes these quarrels and fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you do not have, so you murder, you covet, you cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask, and when you ask, you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. So, when worldliness gets in a church, it shows that we don't understand the the role that difficulties are supposed to do. We have distinctions that are superficial. Our speech becomes harsh and critical and judgmental wisdom, that we, things that we think is wisdom leads to more fighting because it's all based on an earthly perspective. And then arrogance abounds. Look at chapter 4, verses 13 to 17, "'Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make profit. Yet you do not know what, your, what tomorrow will bring. What is your life?' Worldliness gets into a church and we think we call the shots in our lives. We forget that everything is in the Lord's hands. Who are you to say what tomorrow will bring? You have no idea, but you don't even stop to consider that because you don't have the wisdom you need. You don't have the wisdom because all you're busy criticizing and judging and gossiping because you don't recognize trials. The hard conditions you in are there to make you mature and complete in Christ. And then finally, double-mindedness, which which really is the whole problem of these readers. Look at chapter 1, verse 8. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. He makes a comment there. And then again in chapter 4, verse 8, draw near to God and He'll draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. It's a, it's a, a spiritual schizophrenia. It's a spiritual schizophrenia that, that interferes with their prayer life and leads to the situation where they don't put into practice the very things they know they should. It's this double-mindedness. That is James. Uh, the reason I do this is there's a couple things that James is overall doing, but the one that I think is helpful for us is James's overall message is a call to repent from such a compromising spirituality, right? Look at chapter 4, uh, verses 4 through 10, when it kind of hits its crescendo you adulterous people. Okay, so that's, yeah, it's a crescendo when the pastor is calling the people, you adulterous people. Why are they adulterous? Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Adultery is when you give the love due to someone that's that's due it to someone else. He says, you're all adulterous people because you want to be friends with the world. The love and allegiance you should be given to God, you give to other things. You are adulterous people. Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Notice that, friends. There's, there's, no, there's no middle ground here. You're either a friend of God or you're not. There, there's no frenemy category here, right? One or the other. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the Scripture says, He yearns jealously over the Spirit that He has made to dwell in us? God wants to see us become like He. He gave us the Spirit for that purpose, but He gives us more grace. Ah, good to hear. Good to hear, because we're adulterous people. We're in big trouble, but He gives grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. It gets even more intense. Be wretched, and mourn, and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning, and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. So, James' overall message is turn from this compromising spirituality To be a friend of the world, to be an enemy of God, it will profit you nothing. Turn away and, here's the second thing, and help others who are doing the same, turn away. Look at the very last two verses of the book, chapter 5, verse 19-20. Brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. See, we know this is James's overriding concern, overall message, excuse me, since he repeatedly emphasizes the undivided nature of God in this book, the oneness of God, right? We've talked about James 1:17, where he says this amazing verse, let every good gift and every perfect gift come, is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. God is holy."